0: The Sermon on the Mount is the longest continuous section of Jesus speaking that is found in the New Testament, and it emphasizes his moral teachings. To most believers, the Sermon on the Mount contains the central tenets of Christian discipleship. Prior to this, Jesus, as you might recall, had been preaching in the town of Galilee, as we see in the fourth chapter of Matthew, to great crowds who followed him wherever he went. And in the beginning of the sermon, in chapter 5, we see Jesus go up to a high mountain. Surrounded there by his disciples, he begins to preach. And it's within that context that we hear Jesus say the following, You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. What I would like to do this morning is break this passage down a little bit for us. You may have read in your bulletin that this past winter I led a small group at First Covenant centered on compassion and learning to love all people, including those we may regard as enemies because we all have them. Please do not feel like I am up here this morning thinking that I have this all figured out, because I don't. I am not someone who is typically glowing, with warm, ooey, gooey, kumbaya feelings of affection for people. (laughs) Least of all, my enemies. So I'm in this with you, and perhaps we can figure this out together and be on this journey together. It's important to note here that Jesus does not mean the kind of love as we are commonly accustomed to hearing about in our Western culture today. I feel the word love has become so debased in our lexicon that very few people even know what it means here. We hear songs in our heads beamed into our electronic devices or on the radio that preach to us, all we need is love. But what on earth does that mean? In the course of a conversation with a friend or a group of people, we may often say something like, I just loved that ice cream cone. Or didn't you just love that movie? Or didn't you just love running that marathon with me? It's as if it only depends on feeling. But feelings come and go. No, love used here in this context relates to the Hebrew word chesed, which was a term used in the ancient Near East in international treaties, and something Pastor Adam does with us at First Covenant, and I'm going to do it now. Whenever he uses a Latin, Hebrew, or Greek word, he makes all of us in the congregation respond back so he knows we are paying attention. So, everybody use your deepest guttural voice and everybody say, Chesed. Yes. Very good, very good. Okay? When two kings who may have been enemies promised to love one another, that did not mean that they would fall into each other's arms and become best friends, but rather they would look out for each other. They would give each other practical help and advice, even if that meant putting their own needs and desires on the back burner. And it's interesting to think of love in that context, and keeping that definition in mind, let's... Uh, revisit a familiar passage from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, in which he states, Love is patient and kind. It's not jealous. It's never boastful or conceited. It's never rude or selfish. It does not take offense and it's not resentful. Love takes no pleasure in other people's wrongdoing, but delights in its truth. It's always ready to excuse, to trust, to hope, and to endure whatever comes. Now, I don't know about any of you here. But at a time when this world has never been more interconnected, while at the same time so perilously polarized on a whole host of issues for a variety of reasons, I feel like this is the kind of love that we need to have for all of those we come into contact with, even those we may regard as enemies. And if we do not do this, I am afraid, this world is no longer going to be a viable place To pass on to the next generation, compassion in my mind is no longer a nice idea, but an urgent global imperative. When Jesus calls us to love our enemies here, he's taking an older passage of scripture and improving upon it. Sometimes this is referred to as midrash, and what Jesus is commenting here on is a passage that's familiar to us from Leviticus, which calls us to love the stranger, If a stranger lives with you in your land, do not molest him. For you were once strangers in Egypt yourself, and you must treat him as one of your own. And so what Jesus is doing here is saying, love the stranger and love the neighbor, but let's take it a step further and love our enemies as well. And what I find interesting in this passage, since I come from a lens of teaching high school global history, is that all of the major world faiths independently have developed this compassionate idea that we hear Jesus preach about this morning. All of the major world religions independently have developed a version of what is often referred to as the golden rule. Never treat others as you would not like to be treated, or in its positive form, treat all others as you would like to be treated yourself." Now, the first person that I know of who formulated the Golden Rule in a form that was written down was Confucius, some 500 years before Christ, during a time of intense violence in ancient China. That period of time lasted for roughly 200 years and is often referred to as the Warring States period. And during this time, each of the ancient Chinese states fought one another until there was only one left. And that became the Chinese Empire. And after this period of warring states, Confucius's students, who never wanted to experience violence of that magnitude ever again, asked him, Master, which of your teachings can we put into practice all day and every day? And Confucius responded simply with shu. And shu means likening to the self. The golden rule asks us all to look inside our own hearts, Discover what gives us pain, because as humans, that is the one unifying feature. We all experience pain. And then refuse under any circumstances whatsoever to inflict that pain on anybody else. All day and every day, Confucius said to do this, not just when we feel like it. He went on to further note, and I believe with chilling accuracy, when you think of how world history has played out, if humanity as a whole did not put this into practice all day and every day, we would ultimately end up destroying one another. A later contemporary of Confucius' Mosey added the concept of yan ai to the golden rule, which simply means having concern for everybody. And Mosey went on to say that we need to go out amongst all people as if we were in the presence of an important guest. And just as a brief aside, as I was thinking about this idea of having concern for everybody, I realized I didn't need to think too much further than the four walls of this church. For years, the congregation here at Zion has shown yon eye to so many. We need only remember the way that you've supported Fred and Kelly Prudek, both financially and prayerfully, as they minister to people in the Czech Republic. Or we can think of a son or daughter of this church, First Kyle Geiser, who went out to live amongst rivaling tribes in Rwanda. Or Annalee Johnson, who is here this morning. Or Annalee Johnson, who left... United States and went to live in China not just in the pursuit of a Mao Zedong wristwatch with the arms that go around like this for <laughs> yours truly but more importantly <laughs> but more importantly to minister and work at a Chinese adoption agency matching those children with American families, We need only look at the way this church has come alongside those on the arduous and long road of addiction and recovery, the way you support Pastor Al in Nueva Vida Covenant Church, Equip Asia, or the newly formed You Can ministry downtown, and not to embarrass them or their parents, but the way that you've also come alongside two teenage girls of this church, Sienna D'Angelo and Annika Spitzer, who have taken it upon themselves to form Kids with a Cause, or Quack for short, as a way to give back to their community and help those less fortunate. You do your parents, proud girls, and you give us all hope for a brighter future. Can I get an amen for all of that? We see this ethic of the golden rule morph and play out in many of the other major world faiths, Buddhism, Islam, and many of you may be familiar with the story of the Rabbi Hillel in the Jewish tradition who, when asked by a pagan if Hillel could recite the whole of Jewish teaching while he stood on one leg, promptly stood on one leg and said, that which is hateful to you do not do to your fellow human being. That is the Torah and everything else is only commentary. Go and study it. The golden rule instructs us all to remember our own pain and then use that pain as a guide in our treatment of others and that is what Jesus is calling us all to do this morning when he calls us to love our enemies. And as I was reading through various interpretations of this scripture, getting ready for this morning, I came across a passage by Chuck Swindoll that struck me. Swindoll said, and I quote, In my opinion, Jesus' words here are among the most unusual he ever uttered. The strange-sounding advice not only cuts against our own human nature, but it represents the antithesis of the advice most Americans are given. Nevertheless, his words are wise and his way is right. If we will only give them a chance, we can discover how true and yes, once again, how simple his advice really is. Jesus recognized that hating our enemies was a common and a natural thing to do. Some of us in this sanctuary this morning may have more enemies than others of us. Enemies come from the circumstances of our own lives and from the choices we may or may not have made. These circumstances may have been beyond our control. Perhaps we've been assaulted, cheated, bullied, abused, disliked, or hated. And this hatred of us could be simply because of the color of our skin, the job title that we might hold at work, the prejudice against us, or simply being in the wrong place at the wrong time. But choices are within our control. No one can be our enemy unless we choose for them to be. Others, other, someone else may label us as the enemy, but no one can be our enemy without our permission. And in our world today, our threshold for enemyhood is low. Enemies can include anyone who disagrees with us, whether that's religiously, politically, or personally. Quite frankly, the enemy is anyone who does what we don't like. And when I was discussing the fact that I was going to be preaching this morning with friends at work over lunch this last week, some of them looked rather mutinous at me as I explained what I was going to be talking about. One of my very good friends exclaimed, what do you mean, Matt? <laughs> like that, almost. <laughs> what do you mean, Matt? Does this mean I can never say another negative thing about my ex-husband? And somebody else said, her my annoying sibling? And somebody else said, her our impossible coworker? And somebody else said, or that country with which we are locked in conflict. And my simple answer to all of them and to all of you that may be thinking the same thing is no. Because you wouldn't want somebody saying those things about you. Again, it's that idea of having concern for everybody. Jesus in this passage is calling us to absolutely radical behavior. It may be the most revolutionary teaching in human history, loving our enemies, is deliberately choosing against bitterness and choosing benevolence. It is doing the supernatural rather than the natural, and loving our enemies means choosing the highest good for them, even when we may have received the lowest evil. Sometimes it might be a tough love, but it's always seeking what's ever best, even for your enemy. And there are people in the church that we deem as enemies. Christians sometimes attempt to justify their anger by calling it righteous indignation. But we can be tempted to have an an eye-for-an-eye mentality against those who might mistreat us. We may even pretend to resist evil, supposing that God is on our side as we seek to even the score against somebody else And we may even try to find a proof text of Scripture as a backbone for our revenge, like Romans 12.9, which says, "'Hate what is evil and cling to what is good as long as we read no further in there.'" But friends, we know that this isn't the whole picture. Paul, in this passage, urges us, therefore, by the mercies of God to present our bodies as a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God and to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is acceptable and perfect and good. Martin Luther Once, when asked about this idea of loving your enemies, said, and I quote, "'The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies, "'and he who will not suffer this does not want to be in the kingdom of Christ. "'He wants to be among his own friends, to sit among roses and lilies, "'not to be with the bad people but the devout. "'Oh, you blasphemers and betrayers of Christ, "'if Christ had ever done what you are doing now, "'who would have ever been spared?'' And centuries later, Dietrich Bonhoeffer added, and I quote Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end of all, his disciples had deserted him, and on the cross he was utterly alone, surrounded by mockers and evildoers. For this cause he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian too belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of his foes. That is his commission. His work. And the fate of Jesus and the cross should serve as a symbol and a reminder to us all of what loving your enemies is all about. In the book of Luke, we can visualize the nails being driven into Jesus' hands and the cross being raised as crowds jeer and shout below him. Enemies, in the truest sense of the word. Jesus never did any one of these people any harm. He did nothing but show peace, love, and kindness. And Jesus utters the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Notice what Jesus is praying for here. He's not praying for wealth, for prosperity for the nation. He's not praying for the hungry or the homeless. Jesus is praying for his enemy's forgiveness. And what would we do in the hour of man's worst treatment of us? Would we try and figure out that the pain that might be central to their existence that brought them to the point that they are at? Would we pray for our enemies' forgiveness or would we curse God, curse them and ask God to destroy them? Our world today, like I said, makes it very easy for us to have enemies. Many people rightly question how there can be such a good or a just God in the presence of so much evil And so many evildoers who want to harm us personally, or our country, or even our world about which God may appear to do nothing. And you may be like me watching the evening news while eating dinner some nights thinking, where is God in all of this? But think about this with me. If Jesus is the living image of the invisible God, and there is this much suffering in the world, then God is in some very real way suffering as well. God is not watching idly by as we see images of suffering beamed into our living rooms from Syria or Stockholm, London or Paris, Manchester or Newtown, Connecticut. He's there and he's in it. And I believe the greatest part of Jesus' teaching is his revelation that God can and does use tragedy, suffering, pain, betrayal, forgiveness of our enemies, and even death, not to wound us, but in fact to bring us closer to him. And if we look at our modern history for just a moment, we can see that having compassion and loving our enemies can be dangerous work. We need only look at the lives of Mohandas Gandhi, or Dr. Martin Luther King, or Nelson Mandela. These were men who were flawed, yes, as all of us as human beings are, but these were men who fought for a more compassionate world, and some of them paid the ultimate price for doing so. These were men in our midst who believed that an eye for an eye could make the whole world blind, men who believed that hate could not drive out hate, only love could do that, and these were men who on his inauguration day as president of South Africa, could publicly forgive his prison guards for enduring 27 years of of physical and emotional abuse by them. Who in our own lives, perhaps in this week, month, or year to come, could we perhaps begin to show compassion towards Who in our own lives could we perhaps begin to recognize the pain that may lay at the heart of their existence, the things that make them tick or act the way they do? I invite all of us to do that in the coming days and weeks, and I suspect in the process our hearts will be enlarged. Think globally with me for a second. What if every person on this planet treated all others as they would wish to be treated themselves? What kind of world could we imagine for us? Again, compassion is no longer just a nice idea, but it's an urgent global imperative. And this is a narrative that we see played out much further back than Mandela, Gandhi King, or even Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. This idea of lo- loving our enemies is, uh, is something we can see played out in one of my favorite works of literature, the Iliad, And this is where I'd like to close. The Iliad of Homer tells the story of a short incident in the long ten-year war between the Greeks and the Trojans. And in the course of this terrible warfare, Achilles, the chief warrior on the Greek side, has a fight with his king, Agamemnon, And in a fit of egotism and all of that, Achilles withdraws all of the Greek troops from the battle and goes off and sulks in his tent. And as you might imagine, this is absolutely catastrophic for the Greek side. And in the ensuing confusion, Achilles' beloved friend Patroclus is killed by one of the princes of Troy, Hector. And when Achilles finds out about the demise of his best friend, he goes absolutely berserk, With guilt, grief, and rage, Achilles, normally a very tender-hearted man, absolutely loses his humanity, so much so that even the gods, who have a pretty strong stomach for human wickedness throughout the rest of the Iliad, are appalled by Achilles' behavior. And to channel all of this guilt, grief, and rage, Achilles challenges Hector to a duel. And the two of them slug it out while both armies are standing and watching. And Hector's family, the royal family of Troy, they watch from the city walls. But nobody can beat Achilles. He is undefeatable. And very soon into this duel, Achilles kills Hector and then he mutilates the body. He ties Hector's body to the back of his war chariot and he parades it around and around Patroclus' grave. And then he does an even more egregious thing. He refuses to give the body back to the royal family, Hector's family, for burial. And in the ancient world, if someone did not receive a proper burial, that meant that their soul would never know true rest, but would be restless, wandering, and homeless for all of eternity. But then one night, into the Greek camp comes old King Priam, King of Troy, Hector's father, dressed in disguise, of course, And he makes his way to Achilles' tent, and when he reaches Achilles' tent, he throws off his disguise, and everybody in the tent is shocked. Here is the chief enemy in enemy territory coming to plead for the body of his son. And he makes his way to Achilles, and when he reaches Achilles, he falls at Achilles' feet, and he embraces his knees, and he begins to weep. Homer tells us that Uh, Priam is not only weeping for Hector in this moment, but he's weeping for all of the other sons that Achilles has killed in this terrible war. And Achilles in that moment, he looks at the old man and he remembers his own father. And he also begins to weep. And this is important to note here because in ancient Greek culture, weeping together created a bond between men because suffering, pain, sorrow was something that lied at the heart of human existence. And so the sound of these two avowed enemies weeping fills the tent, Priam for all of his sons, and Achilles, Homer tells us, now for his own father, and now for Patroclus. And then they stop weeping. And Achilles goes and he fetches Hector's body and he comes back and he lays it very tenderly in the old man's arms, afraid that this great weight might be too much for him to bear. And then Homer tells us that these two avowed enemies, they look at each other in the eye and each sees the other as sacred, as divine, as godlike. And so, friends, with Christ as our example and Christ, in each one of us here this morning, this illustration from the Iliad, I believe, can, ser- can serve as a lesson to us all. In that moment when we feel, uh, feel that bond of compassion with one of our so-called enemies, I believe we too can become divine. And I feel like in the process, in a sense, we have fulfilled our humanity And so, as you begin to love your enemies in the weeks, months to come, bit by bit, because it will not be easy work, remember that God loves you, and I love you too. Amen. Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come fill this place and flood the atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for to be overcome by your presence, Lord. Amen.